epistles. Second Corinthians is our text for this morning. We're starting a new series, so you may want to find a bookmark and keep it in Second Corinthians in chapter 1. And as you're turning, let me uh, say a warm welcome to those who might be watching online uh, or even watching later by video. We're so thankful for the technology that allows God's word to go out, especially uh, during this season when many can't come out and join us. We're thankful that our numbers seem to grow every week as people appear and join us. There's plenty of room here. If we can help you or bless you, uh, let us know. Call, write, email, and uh, we'll uh, be happy to connect with you at home. The text of God's word that we'll have before us this morning is from chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, and we're going to look at verses 3 through 7, the first half of the prologue, verses 3 through 7. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, the translation of God's holy word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, It is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Thus far we read in God's holy word, may he bless it to all who hear, believe, and obey it. Amen. Amen. There are many powerful stories that illustrate suffering, but not so many that show the purpose God may have in suffering, as we hear about from Paul. If we go back to World War II, there's a well-known figure now, a German uh, pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who uh, was trying to do his ministry as uh, Nazism overtook uh, Germany and things went from bad to worse. He was eventually imprisoned by the Gestapo in 1943 for his opposition to them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, while in prison, wrote some letters, and they were later published after the war, letters from prison. And among those letters, there is a poem written to his fiancée. And we know her name. It's Maria von Wiedemeyer. i got to remember that name. The poem was entitled New Year 1945. And stanza three of that poem is as follows. Should it be ours to drain the cup of grieving, even to the dregs of pain, at thy command we will not falter, thankfully receiving all that is given by thy loving hand. It was R.K. Hughes who pointed out this poem in his sermon on this text. 
And he reminds us that this poem had its poignant fulfillment just three months later when Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hung. Two weeks before that prison was liberated by the Allies, he was hung by the Germans. Capital punishment. Well, there's more to the story. Not just a sad poem written to a fiancé he would never see again. But 18 years later in America, another bride-to-be was grieving the death of her fiancé. He died in an accident. She found much comfort in Bonhoeffer's poem. Her fiancé, who died in the accident, happened to be the son of a famous Christian author named Joseph Bailey. When she mailed the Baileys Bonhoeffer's poem, they also found comfort at the death of their son. And 12 years after this, this is now 30 years after Bonhoeffer wrote the poem, Joe Bailey got a letter from a pastor friend who had visited a terminally ill woman in a Boston hospital. And he had given her Joe's book. You see, Joe had written a book of poems named Heaven. And that comforted her soul. The pastor said the dying woman had stayed awake late the previous night and read it and told him of the comfort she had received from it even a few hours before she died. The woman the pastor in Boston revealed was Maria von Wiedemeyer Weller, Bonhoeffer's fiancé three decades earlier. God's comfort in affliction. The purposes God has for suffering may not fully be seen in the moment, but they will come to pass. And that is one beautiful example from history of how God brings about comfort amid suffering, and he has his purposes. The text before us is about suffering, but it's also about comfort. It's about both Paul's sufferings and Paul's experience of comfort. And Paul says this was all intended to be a blessing to the Corinthians to whom he was writing. That's the way God works. One commentator says about this letter and this paragraph, the Apostle Paul says more about suffering, more about comfort than any other writer in the Bible And it is here in this paragraph that he says the most about it. If if you want to have a biblical view of suffering, you need to study this paragraph and think through what Paul is saying. Not only what Paul experienced, but how he explains it and points to the God of all comfort in the midst of it. Yes, Paul is writing 2 Corinthians to answer his critics. They didn't think much of Paul. Paul, what kind of apostle are you? You must not be very close to God. You're suffering so much. You changed your plans. You haven't even showed up. What's going on? God must not really like you. All sorts of things being said about Paul. He's answering his critics. But he's also teaching the church in Corinth the truth about suffering and what God might be doing in it. We'll kind of follow this paragraph as it unfolds with with three headings here. We'll first look at uh, the the God of all comfort, and then we'll look at his designs, and then we'll look at uh, sharing in God's comfort. Paul first says, praise 
to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 3. It's interesting that what Paul's doing here, he's adapting a common Jewish benediction. Blessed be thou, O Lord, maker of heaven and earth. Blessed be. That, that, that cadence that even though Paul's writing in Greek, uh, the Greek-speaking Jews would have picked up on it right away. Just a little foreshadowing. Later on, when Paul deals with those uh, Jewish Christian false apostles who claim to have a step up on him, he understands Judaism and he understands Jesus as the Messiah. So he casts this call to praise in that Jewish Tone, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. Why does Paul begin with this note of praise? Well, it's common in his letters to say something positive. Usually after the salutation, what does Paul say? He usually says, I'm thankful for you. But they've been a little contentious, and Paul doesn't say that right away. Instead, He looks heavenward and thanks God for the Corinthians. And he's asserting the sovereignty of God over the situation. I'm writing to you and you may not want to hear what I have to say. There are some there that don't like me. But let us praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us acknowledge his sovereignty. And notice... Paul moves on to describe God. He not only praises him, but he describes God. He describes the character of God. Do you have answers when someone asks you what God is like? Could you describe the character of God? We we can think of holiness and power, many of the things we sing about. Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he calls God the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Let's look at those. First, he calls him the Father of mercies. Christianity is, is, is distinct for recognizing the Almighty as a Father in heaven. Well, nations around the world worship some unknown God or give the God, they worship some name. Christians call God our Father in heaven. And Paul says he's not simply a father, but he is a father of mercies. And when the Bible talks about the mercies of God, it always uses the plural. There's always more than one. Because he is not a stingy, stubborn father in heaven. He always gives abundantly. Later on, there's that word uh, overflowing, abundantly. Not only sufferings come in in abundance, but comforts come in abundance. That's God's trademark. He is a lavish Father in heaven. When Paul says that God is the Father of mercies, every mercy, any blessing that comes your way really comes from God. He is the source of mercies. He is the spring of all our blessings. George Guthrie says, as we face harsh circumstances in life, we may be tempted to doubt God's attention, feeling as if God has abandoned us to our difficulties. Yet here, Paul reminds us of our Father's character. Even as Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount said, 
that Jesus is not like a father who, if you ask for a loaf of bread, will give you a stone. Or ask for a fish, that's another food item, would give you a snake. God is a father who knows what's right to give and what's good to give. Remember his character. If you're going to talk about suffering at all, if you're going to try to figure out why there's pain in the world, make sure you start in the right place. God is God and he is good. He is a father of mercies to believers. About four or five hundred years ago, the Puritan Richard Sibbs uh, had something to say about this first chapter of 2 Corinthians. He published a whole book of sermons. He's got a hundred pages on this paragraph alone. And he has a pastor's insight. He says, the nearer the soul is to the fountain of comfort, the more it is comforted. That makes sense. He goes on, though. Not only the nearer the soul is to the fountain of comfort, the more it is comforted, but the soul is never so near to God as in the extremity of affliction. Which leads us to this second descriptor, the God of all comfort. God of mercy, not giving us what we deserve, blessing, helping us, being a father, but he is also the God of all comfort. For every affliction of the Christian, God has the ability to match it with a comfort, with a consolation, with encouragement. And if you underline things in your Bible, I encourage you to underline that phrase, all comfort. God is a God of all comfort. God is not a a, a one-hit wonder that he only has one song to sing, one mantra to offer. God can engage the believer in any circumstance and bring comfort. What do we mean by this term comfort? Some of you might have a Bible translation where it says consolation uh, or encouragement. Um, The word comfort is all over this paragraph. I don't know if you want to count it up, but you can. In its noun or its verb form, you find six of one and four of the other. Uh, This term for comfort or encouragement, parakalesis is ten times in these few verses. That's a tremendous clue to the theme of this letter. It's a a tremendous part of the theology of Paul. So what does this mean? Comfort, encouragement, parakalesis. And you might be thinking of another word if you heard the Greek. uh, Paraklete, the comforter. There's a lot of overlap. Well, let me first disabuse you of, uh, of one idea. Uh, the term for comfort here isn't just a, a cup of hot cocoa and a, and a nice hug or a warm blanket. There, there, Paul, you've been stoned or shipwrecked here. Have a hug. God, God loves us and shows his love. I'm not diminishing that. But why do we read Hallmark card theology into this paragraph? The word, as as intended in Greek, means to strengthen much, an act of emboldening another in their belief or course of action, especially with the verb to comfort. To embolden? We don't usually think of that. We we see someone in their grief and, and we want to empathize and sympathize and express our love and care. All well and good. But God does more when we're afflicted. 
You know what? He's the perfect father in heaven and he sees us. He'll, he'll love us, but then he'll help us to do what is right. He'll help us to endure the affliction, to learn from it and to prosper. And he will cause us to be strengthened in our belief or course of action. Just by way of illustration, you might not want to try to turn. You can jot down some references where this verb is used elsewhere in this same letter. In chapter 2, verse 8, the word is used and translated beg. I beg you. In chapter 6, verse 1, it's translated appeal. In chapter 8 and chapter 9, it's translated urged. This doesn't sound like a warm hug. It sounds like this verb is trying to keep something moving in the right direction. It sounds like this verb is is doing something substantial to help. To strengthen much. The God of all comfort. You see, as uh, Greek scholar David Garland says, the comfort that Paul has in mind has nothing to do with a laid-back feeling of contentment. It is not some tranquilizing dose of grace that only dulls pains, but a stiffening agent that fortifies one in heart, mind, and soul. Comfort relates to encouragement, help, exhortation, God's comfort strengthens weak knees and sustains sagging spirits so that one faces the troubles of life with an unbending resolve and unending assurance. That's the comfort God brings. It's an equipping. It's purposeful. It's powerful. We've got to think much more highly of God than we used to, perhaps, when we looked at this verse. And what Paul wants us to understand is that when we suffer, God will comfort us. And God has purposes in our suffering. He has purposes in comforting us so that we can help others and serve others. Now, when it says God of all comfort, we need to understand this. He can, in any circumstance... Be the comfort, encourager, and strengthener you need. But it does not mean God takes away every grief, pain, and fear. We can't press all to mean uh, our, 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 our road is smooth and perfect. All means God can in any type of situation bring that comfort. He can match and overmatch. You see, as Richard Sibbs explained to his persecuted church centuries ago, we cannot have the full comfort till we come to heaven. There tears shall be wiped from our eyes. In this world, we must be content to have comfort with some grief. It's God's design. Nevertheless, Paul starts with the character of God. Do you know this God? Do you know his grace and his comfort? The heart of the paragraph between verses 3 and 7 here, Paul talks about God's purposes. I'd like to know why suffering happens. Paul, you're pretty happy there. You seem to be blessing God and talking about comfort and affliction, but you've had it rough. In fact, in this letter, Paul shares more of the rough 
life he's had. Someone said recently that uh, no man in the history of the world suffered more than Paul. In the body, in the flesh. I thought that was kind of profound. Sometimes we think of him as just as a Bible character. and No, you take a measure of what human beings have endured during their span of years on earth. Paul went through as much, if not more, than anyone else. Give some perspective to the things he's saying. And what is he saying? He's saying God has designs in, in affliction. God has purposes for afflictions. Does he not pick that up immediately in verse 4? Who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able. So that we may be able. That points to a purpose clause so that we would be able to do something. There's a purpose in our suffering, in our affliction. Now, yes, we, we have to acknowledge a footnote here. As Derek Prime says, Paul does not attempt a comprehensive explanation of trouble and suffering, but he points to some purposes God may have in them. God comforts us so that we may be able to comfort someone else. You may not see it immediately. Why did I have to go through that? We don't see the one that we're to help right away. It may be down the road. Paul's saying here, if we're afflicted, it's for another's good. If we're comforted, that too goes beyond yourself to the good of someone else. That we may be able to comfort others. Well, let me just pause here. Little section, I didn't put it into the outline, but how do we do that? If I've been through affliction, suffering for the cause of Christ, how might I help another Christian who's suffering for Christ? Well, we could first give others the example. We could let them see our endurance and then tell them of our endurance if it was in the past. We can, we can give them hope by sharing our example, our testimony. That's one reason I read Christian biographies. I think it's part of a, a healthy reading diet for a believer. Uh, read sermons from time to time. You can do that. You can read uh, wonderful works of fiction that describe the world. That's fine. Uh, you can read literature and how to have a better prayer life. But I read biographies because I want to see how somebody pulled it off or how God worked in a human being. Even when I'm reading the works of a Puritan, I often spend a lot of time in that introduction, the biographical introduction. Who was this guy? It's very helpful. Paul shares, and he, by his sharing, gives us a model that we are able to help someone else by giving them an example, giving them our testimony, and building their hope. And I would further say, that we're better able to serve simply because we grow spiritually through our afflictions. We don't have to have the exact same situation. Yeah, I, I lost a job because I was reading my Bible once. Your boss is yelling at you. I know. It, we don't have to connect the dots that way. But rather, when we have been suffering for Christ and we have grown spiritually, you know that afflictions help you grow a lot. You pray more when you're afflicted. When times are good, a lot of times God's people don't pray as much or as fervently. So how does God get us to grow? He lets a little affliction in the door. 
And as we grow spiritually, we're more equipped in general to help others. That's part of what's going on here. God's purposes for our afflictions. He mentions in verse 5, sharing in Christ's suffering. What does that mean, this phrase? Well, lots of speculation by commentators and different people bending it uh, this or that way, the genitive of possessive. What does that mean in Christ's suffering? We share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. To boil it all down, I think simply what Paul is saying here is that because of our union with Christ, because we're disciples of Christ, we're going to be treated as Christ was treated. And if your Christian life isn't that Christ-like, you might not be suffering like Christ. What Paul is not saying here is that uh, we share in the atonement of Christ. Only Christ could die on the cross. Only the blood of Christ has saving power, not your blood, not my blood. He's not saying that I'm helping get saved by helping with my suffering. You see, there's that worldview that thinks all suffering is redemptive, uh, or, or even if you go to the concepts of karma uh, and reincarnation, there's this role we play by going through difficulty that we're purified and made. No, no, that's not what Paul's saying at all. He's saying because Christ died, because the sinless Savior died, the guilty soul is set free. And because we follow Christ, we will be treated much like our master. Because we wear the uniform of Jesus, People will see that and spit on us, mistreat us because of him. So this sharing in the sufferings of Christ is in that sense, because of our union with Christ. Later on in chapter 4, you might even turn a page and see this. In chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, Paul says this, which relates. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. There is a spiritual union with Christ, and our treatment in this world is because of that. Or when Paul writes to the Philippians over in chapter 3, he said in his prayer, that I may know Christ in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul saw those parallels. The Christian life looks like the life of Christ in this broken, rebellious world. And God notices. And just as the Lord, the Father, God, strengthened his Son, God will strengthen us for the suffering in this world. Sharing in Christ's sufferings. Paul mentions it here because those Corinthians, those doubters, had such a horrible view of suffering, they're forgetting that God's own son suffered in this world. What are you Corinthians going to say? That Jesus was a loser because he got kicked out of some synagogues or because he was mistreated? He says, what I'm going through is because of my connection to Christ, not because of my unimportance to God. Paul lifts suffering to the highest level by referring to our sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Connecting the dot between your suffering 
as a Christian and the sufferings of Jesus should elevate the experience. It should be honored and esteemed to suffer for Christ. I don't think Christians in this generation think that way. And again, God's aim is that we are able to help others. As we've already mentioned. Let's look at verse 7 for our passage. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 7 As Paul ends this paragraph, this opening paragraph of his prologue, he says, Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. We have to understand that Paul is trying to present suffering as a means to blessing. And as he writes to these Corinthians, he's reminding them, first of all, the premise is that true Christians will share in Christ's sufferings and comforts. True Christians will experience both. Contrary to the health and wealth gospels, your best life now includes some painful things. You won't hear that from the health and wealth preachers, but you read it in the Bible. You hear it from Paul. But Paul is hopeful, and he knows that sharing and suffering is essential to authentic ministry. Kent Hughes said, it is a dynamic way of looking at life because it endows all Christian living with elevated importance. The hard things we undergo, as well as the comforts, are all graces that together authenticate and empower ministry. So that those who truly desire to minister will patiently accept their lot from God and work on. If you're thinking the Christian life doesn't include suffering, you're not going to be having the authentic view of the scriptures. When Paul wrote that great theological treatise to the Romans... Chapter 7, his struggles with sin as a Christian, and then the the triumph of of chapter 8. He says this in the middle of chapter 8, verse 17. He says, if we are children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may be glorified with him. Just when you get through the troubles of Romans 7 and you get to Romans 8, you know there's some great promises there. Life is good, life has meaning, we have life in the Spirit. Paul reminds us that suffering is still in the picture. And if you say, why is suffering in the picture? We've kind of described that. So that God can work out his purposes to grow you, to use you, to bring glory to himself. In verse 7, Paul says explicitly, our hope for you is unshaken. What would be the opposite of that? It would be Paul saying, I'm disappointed. I'm not sure what's ahead for you. In his first letter to the Corinthians, he had to correct them quite a bit. But now as he he presents this role for suffering and its connection to authenticity, he says, "I, I think you'll get it. 
I hope you will understand. My sufferings are because of Christ. Paul has hope that is unshaken because of Christ. That's the context here, is it not? He doesn't repeat the Lord's name in verse 7, but that's his theology through the whole paragraph. He says in verse uh, 5, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. That connection gives Paul hope. If you're genuine Christians and you're hearing this, Paul says, the comfort is going to come. God is able, and able because of Christ. Look how he begins uh, uh, verse uh, 10. I know that's in the upcoming paragraph. But when Paul shares his personal example of these things, that's the next paragraph, he says this in verse 10. He, God, delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Paul's hope for these Corinthians wasn't based on the Corinthians. Oh, I know you're all wealthy and smart and noble in Corinth. You'll get this. No. Paul's hope is in God, who God is and how God works. And if God brings them into suffering for the sake of Christ, he will bring them into comfort. He holds fast because of Christ. Even down in verse 21, he says as much, does he not? 2 Corinthians 1. 21, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. Can I turn this around? We're talking about hope is secured by Christ. Let me make this point. There is no such hope apart from Christ. How how does one understand your sufferings? How does one understand what God's doing apart from Christ? Paul made that argument when he wrote the first time to the Corinthians. He said, the only way you're going to figure out what God's doing in the world is if I preach Christ. This is what he said when he wrote his first letter from the beginning of chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come promoting to you the ministry of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Everything's going to be good. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Isn't that the epitome of suffering? Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness. And in fear and much trembling in my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. But in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. There is no hope to living the Christian life or understanding uh, the hardships of life in this broken world apart from Christ. Paul will say later in his second lesson, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. A whole new perspective if you have Christ. So as he explains suffering and comfort, Christ is at the center of that. In closing, let me say three things, and I I think they're important. So let me say them slowly and carefully so that we can take these away. The first application and exhortation is this. See God aright. See God aright. 
bad Christian living and understanding comes starts with how you view God. If you view God poorly or wrongly, you're already off track. It starts with God. God is good. God is great. God is gracious. See God aright. George Guthrie said, suffering can actually drive us to God. No kidding, that's the whole point of the passage. He says, suffering can actually drive us to God and to deeper community with others who suffer and even to a celebration of God's encouragement, a type of encouragement only experienced fully in the crucible of affliction. God can do that. See him aright. Know that he's a God that not only sovereignly allows suffering, but he's there in the furnace with his friends. That's the God we serve. He's there in the boat with the disciples who are afraid of drowning. He's there with his people. Even when he allows suffering, when he deploys suffering and affliction for his purposes. As the suffering comes, so comes the comfort God overflows. He is a father of mercies and a God of all comfort. See him rightly. Secondly, learn to value suffering for the Lord. Now we have to be clear. This passage isn't talking about the suffering you bring on yourself. You show up late for work all month. And you don't get any work done and you get fired. You are not suffering for the Lord. Just, just trying to pick the obvious example. Or through your intemperance, words come out of your mouth and you destroy a relationship. You're not suffering for the Lord. But when you take your stand for Christ and your yes is yes and your no is no, in a world that doesn't understand, you will suffer for Christ. Learn to value suffering for the Lord. Pastor, that's hard. How, how can I understand how to learn and value suffering with the Lord? Why don't you read a, the book about suffering? Right here. God uses suffering amongst his people from Genesis to Revelation. It's not just the book of Job. That's not an outlier. That's more the norm, isn't it? Because God does beautiful things in this world. Learn to value suffering as one of the tools of a God who's building his church. You know, if I were to try to connect that to our season of COVID, I think that would be huge. Again, it's not explicitly suffering for Christ, but the COVID situation has made faithfulness to Christ more challenging in a lot of different ways. I'm sure that God has used it for our good and how we endure that or any other season in this world can be profitable for someone else. Which leads me to the third exhortation. Serve others as God enables you. Serve others as God enables you. When you are suffering, it doesn't mean you get to sit and shut down and, and have a pity party. Paul is saying, no, God has purposes. And God will comfort you. Remember, that's not the warm hug, but he will equip you. He will embolden you in your belief and your action so that you can press ahead and be fruitful. How do you serve others? 
because of your suffering or after your suffering? How do you serve others? Well, first, Richard Sibb says you take notice of the griefs of others. We have to be connected enough to say, hey, hey, what's going on? Why, why are you anxious? Why are you fearful? We have to take notice. We have to live in community. And then we serve others by bringing them nearer to Christ. I know some folks that have been suffering in general terms, not necessarily because of Christ. But the solution is always to bring someone nearer to the Lord. And so I gave out recently these little booklets. Samuel Rutherford, one of the Puritans, wrote a ton of letters. They're published in a massive volume like this. It was reduced to a paperback, and then the best quotes from those letters is now in a tiny little booklet. So if somebody's going through a hard time, I thought that would be great to give to him. It doesn't say how to endure suffering, but rather Rutherford's little book is entitled The Loveliness of Christ, to get people thinking afresh of their Savior in his beauty. Bring someone nearer to Christ, and you will serve them well. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we have been largely free from suffering for Christ in this land, but the days are changing. The winds are blowing in different directions now. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would equip equip us as individuals and as a church for whatever lies ahead. And whatever you bring us through, may we be better for it. And may your word prove true among us. May we praise you as a father of mercies and a God of all comfort. May our testimony to the world and to other believers be encouraging and comforting. May they be strengthened and emboldened to press on in serving you. Father, some of these things sound so lofty, but it's part of your work in everyone who believes. So we pray that you teach us and help us, equip us and use us in all these ways. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.